before, medicine was based on hardware problems, not software problems. So I describe uh, many things that are treated in a hospital or by a GP as hardware problems, where there's physical things that go wrong and we fix those issues. The new dawn of medicine is software problems, neuroplastic problems, where the nervous system and the, uh, the brain are creating uh, responses which cause ongoing illness. And the ability to retrain those responses to bring the body and the brain back to homeostasis is the new frontier of medicine. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from London is Ashok Gupta. Hi, Ashok. Hi there, Nathan. Great to see you. Great to meet you. Likewise. So Ashok's here today to talk about uh, amygdala and insula retraining, which is a a program which helps uh, retrain the brain um, to combat things like chronic fatigue and also other complex diseases. It's a really fascinating area. And Ashok's been a pioneer in this area for the best part of 20 years, I believe. So as I understand, Ashok, you suffered from chronic fatigue from an early age. Is that the sort of the genesis of developing this program? Uh, Yes. So I suffered from ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, when I was at university. And that really kind of kicked off my quest to really understand what causes these types of conditions. Uh, Because when I had it, doctors either dismissed me or said, right, you've got this thing called ME-CFS, we have no cure, we don't know what causes it, you may have it for the rest of your life, right? So you can imagine, it's like a brick wall in front of you. And that kind of really made it, I made it my lifelong quest to say, I want to understand these conditions, really understand the the medical uh, reasons behind it, and come up with a treatment that can help patients. And so you you dove into the research, as I understand. Um, I suppose my first uh, question or piece of curiosity is around how you landed on the brain, like from, you know, when people often look at chronic fatigue, particularly maybe from a, you know, starting from a layman's perspective, it's all sort of nuts and bolts about mitochondria and energy systems, et cetera. Um, The brain would have been maybe one of the, the latter organs or systems I would have considered looking upon so did you unturn a lot of other stones or how did you end up looking at the brain function you know I can't really um pinpoint it but I guess it was my my gut feel at the time that given that every single organ and system in the body is affected there must be a centralized reason as to why this is occurring and often in in medicine there's a kind of more reductionist philosophy where we look at the body like a car and we say right if there's something wrong uh, I don't know, with the, the tire, we go and fix a tire. And if there's something wrong mm. with this part of the engine, we go and fix the engine. Whereas I just had a gut feel, as I could feel in my body, uh, that this actually was something more centralized. And it was definitely to do with the nervous system. And obviously, the brain is the head of the nervous system. So that's where I naturally went to to say, I feel that this is where it actually begins. And my quest started off by reading a book by Professor Joseph Ledoux, uh, The Emotional Brain, looking at Um, how emotions are created in the brain, but not just emotions, but protective responses. So I think, you know, in medicine, once again, uh, you know, we will separate the immunology department from the uh, psychology department, from the physiology department, etc. They're all separate departments. 
Whereas I realized or I, un I believed that the body doesn't see it in that way. The body is one integrated survival mechanism. And that survival mechanism is controlled and, uh, you know, directed by the brain. So that's where I really kind of landed on the brain as, as a starting point for this condition. Wow, it's uh, pretty profound for a young adult to to have that sort of holistic and integrated view. So you you published a paper way back in two thousand and two, I think, about your theory. So can you describe your hypothesis um, that you published back then? Uh, yes, of course. So when I describe this hypothesis, I like to start with the biggest question of all: <laughs> Why are we here? That question can be answered from a philosophical perspective or a religious perspective. Let's answer it from a scientific perspective. Why are we here? We're here because over millions of years of evolution, this nervous system has developed through various animals to get and mammals to get to where we are now. This nervous system, which is trained to essentially ensure the passing on of our genes, the survival of our genes. Okay, so the body and the brain's number one priority is survival and passing on its genes. And that's from a, once again, from a pure scientific perspective. Now, if that is the case, our brains and our bodies, um, when they are in a new environment, their focus will be on survival. And if we look at how we've lived uh, in the past, we've always lived uh, with a very different lifestyle. So often very much outdoors, hunter-gatherers, farmers, cavemen, whatever you want to call it. We had a very different lifestyle to the one we've now had in the last 100 years or so, which is primarily living inside boxes, not so much exposure to daylight or sunlight, um, a, a more processed diet, and most importantly, much higher levels potentially of stress and a busyness of the mind, a busyness in, in terms of life, and also far more exposure to pollutants irritants, etc., which has created what uh, scientists term a pro-inflammatory bias. So the way that we live life at the moment, we've got more of a bias in the brain and the body to be more sensitized to the outside world because we're more exposed to those pollutants. And so, for instance, in conditions like asthma and whatever, there's an increase in that as a result of more pollution that people are generally experiencing. Now, that, that, so that's just the background to my hypothesis, which is we are survival machines. And these survival machines are now put in a very new and different survival environment where there's far more subtle and continuous threats to the system. Okay. Now, if we, if we take that as our starting point and we then look at how a lot of these conditions start. So I call these conditions neuroimmune condition syndromes. So I believe they're neurological in nature. They involve the immune system. They're conditioned because they involve learning in the brain. And they're syndromes because each patient has a unique uh, collection of symptoms, symptomatology that's unique to them. OK, so neuroimmune condition syndromes. And under that banner, I include ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, chemical sensitivities, mold sensitivities, uh, mast cell activation, and a whole host of related conditions, even irritable bowel syndrome, I see as a neuroimmune condition syndrome. So in my hypothesis, which I published in 2002, I see it working in the following way, that each of these patients has a predisposing factor, which may be genetic, and also uh, some nurture effects, a so nature and nurture, uh, nurture in terms of more of a propensity to adverse childhood experiences. And that then means that their brains are likely to be 
more aroused in general. Um, perhaps you might translate that into more anxiety in a particular patient or certainly just a, like a kind of more triggered nervous system and, and potentially a more triggered immune system. Then they'll also go through a period of chronic or acute stress. So they're highly stressed and that combines with a physical trigger. So let's let's start off with the uh, example of MECFS, which often gets triggered in about 70% of patients by some kind of infection. Um, so that's often a flu or a stomach bug or, or whatever. And in my case, it was triggered by a visit to India where I contracted a very bad stomach bug that just never right. seemed to go away. So that was kind of my personal experience. And obviously, I was under a lot of stress because we weren't we were in a new country. There was lots of stimuli. There was lots of uh, events we were going to and, uh, you know, a lot of heat, etc. <clears throat> so that chronic or acute stress combined with a physical trigger then can create what I believe conditioning in the brain and specifically two parts of the brain, which we can talk about later, the amygdala and the insula. Okay. And once that conditioning occurs, um, then the illness or the post-viral illness starts. And let me just describe why the brain may become traumatized in that experience. Now, many of us know that, and certainly those of us practitioners treating patients, we notice that when people are stressed, they certainly seem to be more prone to pain syndromes, infections, all kinds of different illnesses. And in the case of flu, let's take the example of flu. We know that flu is actually uh, life-threatening. And certainly with the COVID situation right now, that's mm. been thrust more into the forefront of, of our kind of medical awareness that flu does cause death. And most of us take it for granted. That, oh, we get flu, we get over it. But imagine if we are under chronic stress, our immune system is compromised. So that virus, that flu virus, is likely to stay longer in the body. It's likely to cause symptoms for longer. And the brain and the body go into emergency mode. And we know that those who have compromised immune systems have chronic inflammation, uh, pneumonia, and can pass away from flu. So therefore, <clears throat> if we're under that chronic state, can we logically see that the brain then decides that, oh dear, I'm in trouble, this body is in trouble, I may not be able to ensure the survival of this genetic material <laughs> onto the next uh, 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 offspring. Therefore, I must enact an over-defensive response to protect this person. And therefore, it's like almost like a PTSD, but a physiological post-traumatic experience, where the brain then realizes that this hyper-protection is required. And once it decides that, something happens in the amygdala and insula, uh, a, a kind of neurological learning process, which then means that even once the flu has gone, the brain is in an readied state to hyperreact. And what it does is it hyperreacts to any stimuli which remind it of the original experience. So that stimuli might be overworking, it might be stress, and many patients talk about how stress triggers their symptoms. It might be overexertion triggering their symptoms. Or it may be any hint of another infection or any hint of symptoms in the body then become conditioned stimuli where the brain says, uh-oh, we might be back in that traumatic state where we were, where we nearly passed away, where we nearly died. Therefore, we must enact a chronic stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and a stimulation of aspects of the immune system. So the brain is constantly triggering those responses, 
which then create the symptoms such as muscle dysfunction, pain, cognitive issues, sleep issues, autonomic dysfunction, stomach problems, all the different symptoms that we know occur in these patients. And in the case of uh, MCS and mold, we may get uh, allergic type responses, which then feed back to the brain, telling the brain that we're still in danger. Because look, we have symptoms in the body. This is indicative of ongoing infection or ongoing problems. And remember, we our number one priority is survival and making sure that we are overprotected. And so the brain becomes hypersensitive. The thalamus, the anterior cingulate, the amygdala, the insia, prefrontal cortex, all of these areas of the brain you know, really light up on brain scans. So we know the brain is hypersensitive. It takes in these incoming stimuli, sees it as a threat, then overstimulates the nervous system and immune system, which then creates chronic sympathetic arousal and immune dysfunction, which creates the symptoms, which is then uh, sensed in a overreactive brain, oversensitive brain. And there we go in a vicious cycle. So my core hypothesis is that the reason these conditions become chronic and last for years, if sometimes not decades, is because the input and the output of the system create of a loop. So for those of people who are interested in physics, you know, we know that when there are loops or when there are cycles, there's often a cycle occurs because the input and output of the system become connected. So in this case, the output of the system, i.e. chronic stimulation of the immune system and nervous system, becomes the input to the system, which then triggers itself and creates a vicious loop. Mm. So that, in summary, is the, the kind of hypothesis. Beautiful. I might just um, underscore some of those points there because I think it's really important, particularly for like uh, the natural or functional medicine um, practitioners. So that idea of conditioning, which we'll come back to, um, but you mentioned like an infection or chronic stress or toxicity could be a contributor and, and a, a, a main or a, one of the triggers but it's the brain's processing and um, output to the um, periphery, for want of a better term, with the sympathetic nervous system, et cetera, that's driving their symptoms. So in many ways, perhaps practitioners, um, you know, they're, they're doing what they feel is best by treating symptoms, which is important, but also maybe, yes, they could be treating the viral infections or the mold or the, um, you know, the Lyme disease, et cetera, but... There, there could be a missing piece here with the brain because it's that that positive feedback <coughs> system that that loop um, that's sort of um, reinforcing those old memories or stimuli that's reactivating that system that needs to be the, the circuit needs to be broken so to speak and you may not get there with all the herbs and nutrients that um, cue the your um your your system of therapy. Um, so I think just, yeah, if you want to correct me or comment on that, uh, yes. Yeah, so. We certainly believe that a complementary a holistic approach is very important. So we aren't against uh, practitioners you know, yeah, using yeah. a whole range of different uh, types of treatments. And that is important. But yes, we also do believe that those essentially treat the symptoms or certainly make it easier for the body to handle the overstimulation. Mm. Right? So as an example, we may talk about, um, let's say, uh, you know, problems with sleep. Now, certainly those problems with sleep could be supported by nutritional supplements or let's say mainstream medicine, sleeping pills or whatever, which could improve that particular aspect of someone's health. 
but it doesn't go back to the root cause of why are these people having this long-term dysfunction in the first place? What is at the core of it? You know, and um, it, you know, it, in our experience, um, supporting and helping the body deal with this overstimulation is beneficial. But really, what creates long-term shifts and long-term changes is an overall reduction in, first of all, stress levels, but secondly, retraining the brain. And I'm sure many, uh, you know, holistic practitioners and naturopaths will recognise that, it, you know, treating the the emotional aspects of this condition, the stress aspects, are, are kind of very important. And um, so, from a holistic perspective, um, there could be all kinds of secondary things that might be occurring like adrenal exhaustion, mitochondria dysfunction, brain inflammation, allergies and sensitivities. Uh, you know, the vagus nerve may not be functioning correctly. All of these things we still believe are downstream effects mm. of a core dysfunction in the brain. Yeah, well said. So um, let's dive into some of the constituents or the components of the brain that um, are theorized and prob- I believe proven to be a, a- overactive or dysfunctional um in chronic fatigue so first of all the amygdala can you just come back to that what what its role is and um often things obviously we're going to speak of the pathology but obviously the amygdala plays an important role for like memory and uh, memory consolidation and so forth so yeah what does it normally do and, and what's happening like in um these chronic illnesses okay when we talk about uh, the amygdala and the insula, uh, we're very, we really want people to be clear that the entire brain is involved um, yes. in these particular illnesses. But we've honed in on the amygdala and insula as where we theorize the core conditioning may occur. And, uh, you know, w- w- we're humble enough to say we're not sure, but that's where our gut feel is as to, as to where mm. the conditioning lies. And that's what the uh, kind of evidence seems to support uh, and point towards. So the amygdala, they're two almond-shaped structures be- behind our eyes in the limbic system part of the brain. And the limbic system has been traditionally associated with the emotional processing or emotional responses. But actually, um, emotion in the terms of physiological context means survival. So when we think of anger or fear, those relate to the fight or flight response. But those aren't purely emotional. They're actually protective responses. They ensure survival. Um, So this is why in medicine, we can't have a separation between the psychology department and the immune department, because Mm -hmm. as far as the brain is concerned, it's a coordinated defensive response to ensure survival, which incorporates different aspects of uh, both the brain, the body and the emotions. So the amygdala processes not only emotions like fear, anger, guilt, etc., but it's also involved in fear responses or protective responses. So the amygdala has been implicated in pain responses and magnifying pain responses and also immune responses as well, which is very interesting. So the amygdala's core role is to protect us from danger and create responses that ensure survival. Okay. And I believe that the core nervous system conditioning or sympathetic conditioning may occur in the amygdala in these particular conditions, because we know that there's acute or chronic stress at the beginning of the condition. And in animal studies, uh, we know that the amygdala is implicated uh, when it comes to uh, creating emotional hyper responses. Then we have a brain structure called the insula. And the insula kind of sits between the limbic system and the cortex. It's traditionally known as part of the cortex or insular cortex. And the insula's role is to take in incoming stimuli from the body, 
process that incoming stimuli, including pain responses, allergic responses, etc., and then create appropriate autonomic and immune responses to create homeostasis. So it's almost like a, a monitor of the entire body to right. see what is the appropriate uh, way of continuing to have homeostasis. Yeah, it's like yeah. a monitoring, monitoring system. So and, the, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, sorry. So just amygdala is probably more for like um, emotional and fear as the insula is more like somatic at sensing. I think one of the main roles is like for um, spoilt food, isn't it? To, it's like your disgust center in a sense. So is it, would you, I don't know, divide it into sort of physical and, and, and emotional uh, monitoring? Um, and that's where, ex- actually, I wouldn't separate it. So that's the interesting thing. The amygdala, I would say, is more involved in protective responses, more related to the nervous system. And right. the insula is more related to protective responses in relation to the immune system. But both the amygdala and insula are involved in nervous system and immune responses. Sure. So I think that, so for me, um, you know, it's a coordinated response across all of these different structures. Yeah, um, okay. And, you know, they have a lot of outputs uh, and connections to the anterior cingulate, which is involved in uh, executive functions and processing, the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus. All of these structures work together to see how what the body is doing right now, ex- assess internal and external dangers and create a coordinated response. And in these particular conditions, what we find or what I, I hypothesize is that because there is so much stimulation and so much threat, these structures can no longer process the signaling. So the amygdala may not be able to make rational sense of what's going on in the body and the brain, and therefore it simply just continues to hyperstimulate the system. And the same with the insula. There is evidence that there is hyperactivity in the insula, hyperactivity in the amygdala in these types of conditions, hyperactivity in the anterior cingulate and thalamus. And there's also uh, shrinkage in the amygdala, uh, shrinkage in the anterior cingulate, uh, shrinkage, in, shrinkage in the prefrontal cortex. Now, in the case of the amygdala, what's very interesting is there's both shrinkage and expansion. So it seems that people who have a predisposition to getting these types of conditions may have a smaller amygdala to start with. But once they get these conditions, their amygdala may be stimulated and may, in fact, increase in size, which is why the research on the size of the amygdala is very mixed, right? Because Mm. you've got two uh, opposing factors uh, which may be indicated. And that's the same in PTSD. So in PTSD, we notice that people who are more prone to getting PTSD have smaller amygdalas but more hyperactive amygdalas. Um, and so that's a very interesting kind of observation. And it could be that a smaller amygdala indicates a lesser ability to process um, signals, which then means that those amygdalas over-respond as a err-on-the-side-of-caution type response, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and what's very interesting, and I'm sure your listeners will find this interesting, is that... Um, this, we can, when we're looking at brain scans, brain scans is like hovering above a city and watching the lights in the city and trying to do, understand what's going on in the city. It's a very blunt instrument. And when we, when we do brain scans, it's very difficult to know exactly what is going on. 
And now animal studies are kind of more interesting because we can actually make lesions in certain parts of the brain and then see what still happens or what doesn't happen. And when they've done animal studies in relation to conditioning of the immune system, um, a lot of research by Dr. Pachero Lopez, a very interesting guy, um, they have found that in animal studies, they give rats an immunosuppressant combined with sweet water. And so when you give the rats an immunosuppressant, guess what happens? Their immune systems are suppressed. They repeat that process about four or five times, and then they give those rats sweet water without the immunosuppressant. Yeah. And guess what? Mm-hmm. Just with the sweet water, the immune system is suppressed. And then when they analyze the rats' brains as to where, where has this conditioning occurred or where has this learning occurred, it's in the amygdala and in the insula, which is fascinating because that research came, came out after I published the hypothesis. So it was, right. it was a great vindication of it that actually, uh, in animal studies, time and time again, uh, the conditioning or the core learning or shifts in the brain seems to be in the amygdala and the insula. And until those parts of the brains are, are retrained, those parts will keep responding as if they've, they know what is best for the body. They know what is best for the brain. And so if we translate this into MECFS, um, the brain says um, any symptoms in the body or infections are sign of ongoing potential danger, let's hyperstimulate the nervous system and immune system. In the case of um, uh, chemical sensitivities, initial exposure may be to a fragrance or paint or uh, some intense experience, which the brain suddenly decides is very effective and negative, and then will now respond to any similar pathogen or potential pathogen and any fragrance. So the whole olfactory system generalizes across so many different uh, smells. Uh, mass cell activation, similar response. Um, this model could also even be applied to things like hay fever. Um, and then when we come to fibromyalgia, fibromyalgia is often triggered by um, uh, pain syndromes that generalize or car accidents. And therefore, pain signals in the body then become the conditioned stimuli. And then the brain, the anterior cingulate, amygdala, insula, all hyper respond, creating excessive inflammation in the body, which creates more pain which signals back to the brain that we are in danger, creating that vicious loop. So each neuroimmune condition syndrome has a unique specific cycle based on that person's vulnerability. Mm. Um, well, it's a very convincing model and it sounds a little bit dire, but this is where your therapies and other therapies step in. So um, you've described the hyperactivity and the the change in structure, the, the neuroplasticity is it. Um, you know, the, the popular word at the moment. Um, but fortunately, we can address and uh, potentially reverse this and this concept of like fear extinction. Is, what's the, the, the neurobiology around um, eliminating this or breaking the, the circuit? So the thing that differentiates us from many other animals um, is that we have this highly developed cortical regions, especially the prefrontal cortex, orbital cortex. Now, these are kind of higher executive functions. And the interesting news is that the limbic system, including the insula, they send information to the prefrontal cortex and the interior cingulate to kind of check in with those mm. higher processing centers to say, is what we're doing correct? And secondly, we want to inform you that this is what's happening because you may want to enact behavioral changes in order to um, uh, 
increased chances of survival. So our higher cortical regions are given opportunities to support the automatic responses of the limbic system and the, and, and the insula, if, if that makes sense. And so the prefrontal cortex can, if it chooses to, override some of those responses. Yeah? And that's what we call fear extinction. So in animal studies, what they find is that if the um, brain is trained, let's say in, in rats, there are neurons called safety neurons that occur from the prefrontal cortex and orbital cortex down to the limbic system, down to the insula, high, you know, highly connected with the anterior cingulate. Uh, and all of these different brain structures can be inhibited or controlled. And it is my hypothesis that for whatever reason, in these patients, it could be a genetic factor, it could be a kind of a neurological factor. These inhibitory systems aren't as effective or certainly seem to be more difficult to create. And therefore, this chronic sympathetic arousal and chronic stimulation of the immune system doesn't come back to its normal balance. And the system stays, the on switch you know, continues to be um, triggered. How do we go about re reversing this then? Um... Uh, we mentioned like neuroplasticity, and as I said, it's a bit of a buzzword. Um, it probably gets, I, don't know, I feel, maybe thrown around a bit too loosely, like there can be ingredients or herbs or, you know, aerobic act activity, which is great for you, can help with neuroplasticity. But as we see, neuroplasticity can go for positive or for um, in sort of detrimental effects, or it can be helpful for like memory. I think there's the, the famous study about the, in your area, the London cab drivers before they had GPS grew um, remarkably large hippocampus, hippocampi, um, from navigating around. So um, my question is, yeah, do we have um, therapies that uh, can redirect the neuroplasticity for promoting the fear um, extinction and eliminating the fear conditioning? Uh, yes. So we believe that this is going on all the time in people's brains. And the idea of neuroplasticity is that obviously – the brain is not fixed, it's rewirable, and it's constantly occurring. Now, in the area of these fear conditioning, or I, I, I use the word fear loosely, what I mean is protective conditioning. So these protective conditioned responses, the reason that why they're more difficult to retrain is because you are retraining something which is ensuring survival. So it's almost like if you're putting your hand on a hot plate or on a gas oven, you're, you're having to retrain your brain not to move the hand away. <laughs> Do you see? Yeah. So as far as the brain is concerned, they're saying, what are you talking about? We're clearly in danger. This is clearly a dangerous situation. I am enacting the appropriate protective response. And the prefrontal cortex has to send a message back saying, actually, this is not a dangerous situation. A defensive response is not required. And so in the Gupta program, what we've done, we spent 20 years trying to refine this and refine this, is create a system and a process in the brain that when enacted, it retrains those subcortical um, uh, systems to no longer respond. And this is where we get the interface between, I suppose, cognitive type tools and more physio neuroimmune type tools in the sense that they are one and the same. And so we're very clear that we this is not in the mind, right? Just because we are mm -hmm. not using surgery or drugs doesn't mean that we're saying that it's in the mind. It's not in the mind, but it is in the brain. 
And our prefrontal cortex, our thinking centers, are part of the brain. Therefore, we can use parts of our brain to retrain other parts using specific processes. And as an example, we know there are direct effects on the brain in terms of activity and size through what, what might be traditionally called more psychological techniques. So meditation, for instance, uh, thickens aspects of the insula, reduces the reactivity of the amygdala, increases pre-cortex, uh, prefrontal cortex gray matter volume. So this is where a so-called psychological technique actually has direct impact on the brain. We know that CBT has an impact on the brain in terms of improving gray matter volume in the prefrontal cortex as well. And, and there's a whole host of other evidence around this. So we use a specific type of um, process, which we call the seven step process, the amygdala retraining and uh, insular retraining process, which looks to recognize when unconscious parts of the brain are signaling danger and how to send a safety response back to the brain to say, we are in safety, we aren't in danger. And that involves um, interruption of signals. Uh, it involves self-coaching. It involves a breathing aspect. It involves visualization. It involves essentially training your brain, training your nervous system to not respond. And it's very different to CBT. And a, a, a good analogy that your um, listeners may find useful is the idea of learning to drive a car. Okay, So when you learn to drive a car, there is neurological conditioning going on. So when you first go in that first lesson, uh, your first driving lesson, you have no idea how to turn the steering wheel and press the gas and use the, sh the gear stick and all those kinds of things. But through training, through repetition and training, just like we rehabilitate people who've lost limbs, through re rehabilitative training, we train the nervous system, train the immune system, to learn how to drive that car. So after 10 lessons, or in some people's cases, 20 lessons or 30 lessons, you eventually get to the stage where your system, your brain has learned how to do those automatic responses without you needing conscious input. And eventually you can learn, you can drive a car whilst eating a sandwich and listening to the radio and having a conversation because they've become automated responses. Um, uh, they've become learned. So in the same way, we have to consciously retrain the brain initially until the brain gets the message and then creates these automatic safety responses. And then the sympathetic comes back to balance. The immune system comes back to balance. And then we find our patients go through a period of detoxification. So they find that um, there's a period of parasympathetic activity where the brain heals, the body heals, detoxification systems come back f uh, fully online. There may be mm. metal detox, etc. And then the energy comes back and recovery occurs. Fascinating. So can you outline what uh, the practice involves, that the program in terms of day-to-day -day or um, over the duration of a program? What's some of the things? Is it, is it dedicated or I think also throughout the day you, you have little activities and tasks as well? Yes. So um, in the mornings we encourage something called the hour of power. So we say at least 45 minutes to an hour patients can invest time in what we call pre-training the brain. So even before you've entered your day, if you pre-train your brain, then your brain's likely to be less reactive and less likely to cause the symptoms. So that involves um, uh, certain activities such as exposure to daylight as soon as you wake to rebalance uh, the sleep system. And it involves certain breathing and meditation techniques to calm down the nervous system. And we also know that meditation makes the brain inherently more rewirable. 
and more neuroplastic. Right. The main part of our program, though, is very unique, which is this seven-step brain retraining process. And we ask people to do that a number of times in the mornings and then throughout the day. So throughout the day, each time people notice signaling from their unconscious coming right. into conscious awareness, they then enact this specific seven-step process in a specific order, which sends the safety signals back to the unconscious. And that is repeated throughout the day. And then there are other tools and techniques such as soften and flow, which is about uh, being in the presence of your symptoms, but teaching your brain to be calm and still in the presence of them, just like a kind of neuro uh, feedback mm. type, type process. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then there are lots of other tools, brain retraining tools and techniques, such as the accelerator technique. Uh, there's techniques to help you sleep better at night. Um, and then there's supporting things. So obviously a, an anti-inflammatory diet can be very useful because the more inflammatory the diet, the more the brain has signals that we're in danger or in trouble. So we encourage yeah. an anti-inflammatory diet, obviously supplements, the obvious ones that most people are, are taking anyway, if they have these types of conditions like vitamin D and coenzyme Q10, um, and then pacing. So how do you pace yourself and train your brain not to over-respond? Because if your brain says you're in danger right now, and you try to go and exercise, mm. you're going to cause more danger signals to the brain that says, you don't have the energy to do that right now. You are going to put your brain, you're going to put your body in a sense of danger again. You mustn't exercise. And therefore, how do you pace the body very gently to help it recover? And then we've got things on, you know, uh, getting fresh air and using sun therapies, etc. So there are supporting techniques which are very holistic, but the core yeah. of it is brain retraining. And yeah. we know that um, this, uh, when the brain is put in a state of being neuro, more, neuroplastic, more neuroplastic through breathing and meditation, then the brain retraining is even more effective. Makes and, yeah, great sense. And just, just to emphasize that, if we're stressed, it's very difficult to, um, to retrain the brain. And an example of this is, uh, it's a bit of a silly example, but let's say a husband and wife come home, they've both had a really hard day's work and they're both really stressed. In that state of mind, suddenly one of them annoys the other person. <laughs> now, the chance of you being able to have a calm conversation with that person and tell them to think differently is going to be far more difficult than when you've both had the time to calm down, done a meditation, and then come together and be able to discuss things rationally. So that's a very kind of a silly example of how when we are hyper aroused, our brains are less likely to take on new conditioning. Yeah, makes but ironically, more, more likely to become traumatized. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you've um, uh, published a, a clinical audit in 2010, and I believe you're also in the process of publishing a, a more um, randomized or controlled trial. So can you talk through both um, endeavors on and the results? Yes. So we conducted a clinical audit. Um, this was on 33 patients. Uh, now we found that over the space of a year, uh, and these patients were uh, MECFS patients, we found that um, two-thirds of the patients made an 80 to 100% recovery within one year. These were subjective outcomes. And 92% of patients um, had some kind of improvement. Uh, there were six uh, dropouts uh, from the study. And so that was uh, you know, a great study for us, and that was published, but obviously it wasn't randomized or controlled. Um, so we've just completed a randomized controlled study in Spain on fibromyalgia. 
uh, it's yet to be published, so this is kind of hot off the press. Mm. Um, what it found was that um, the control group was relaxation exercises. Okay. So people who took uh, amygdala and insular retraining, i.e. the Gupta program, uh, had a certain number of sessions and the control group had a similar number of sessions and a similar amount of homework. So it was quite a good control there. And they were followed up on one month, three months, six months. And the study found that the control group had no improvement, whereas the active amygdala and insular retraining group had uh, within eight weeks, a 40% reduction in fibromyalgia scores, uh, huge reductions in pain, subjective pain, uh, increases in the ability to function in day-to-day life. And those um, effects continued even at three months and six months as well. So it was a great result showing that we are far, we're far more than just relaxation techniques. This is actually yeah. something very unique and very different because the control group didn't have those improvements. Now, obviously, yeah. our program, we encourage people for at least, you know, to keep going for at least six to 12 months because it takes a while to get back to the full health. So any future studies we'd like to do uh, for a longer period of time. Um, but it was a and, and um, what, what was interesting was that, um, you know, many of these patients actually went back to work part time or full time, uh, whereas nobody did in the um, in the control. Um, so this was a great result. And we hope wow. that, that once it's published, it should be published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. Uh, we then wow. hope that, that will stimulate further research um, and larger scale studies. And that studies that study had around 20 people in each group. Sure. And uh, did you do any um, blood work, any biomarkers looking at physiology? Uh, yes, so they, they did do some um, uh, some biomarkers. Um, and in terms of the, the biomarkers of, I think, I believe the cytokines that they were covering there and monitoring there, right. uh, there was no obvious, uh, difference, um, in terms of the biomarkers, which was, you know, a kind of interesting, mm. you know, kind of thing as well in the sense that the biomarkers may, as we know, in these types of conditions aren't necessarily foolproof, um, yes. in terms of, uh, being a di- diagnostic test for these kinds of conditions. Yeah. Yep. And how long did the patients, how long were they suffering for, do you know, on average from the fibromyalgia? Like to get back to work sounds really profound results. Uh, yeah. So um, I believe the mean score was around 10 to 15 years in terms of the number wow. of years that they had had, uh, you know, the condition. So these were kind of long people who'd had the condition for a kind of longer term. Um, so, yeah, hopefully other researchers and clinicians uh, pick up on this research and and as you said do follow-up research any areas you'd like to to follow up on you know perfect world if you had i don't know some sort of great big um grant and budget where would you like to see it go next i'd love to do a large randomized controlled study on mecfs um and perhaps a separate one on fibromyalgia and also chemical and mold sensitivities uh, we would the, the treatment would be slightly different in each of the, the cases but we believe that in a large-scale study, um, we'd be able to show a very dynamic result, a very good result uh, compared to control. And this is what's, I guess, frustrating for us is because we are kind of perceived on the borders of complementary or alternative, whereas actually we think we're very mainstream. We're having these great results with patients, and yet the mainstream medical profession is perhaps you know, sitting on the fence, as it were, and well, we know that research in this area is quite difficult to come across anyway, and it's quite difficult to get funding. Um, but if if we were to get funding and show this great result, um, then this would mean we could have even more money 
put into this type of research. Um, and it's very, very promising and, and um, we're getting results. Whereas when we look at other types of research, uh, people are getting certain results, but they tend to be mm. relatively marginal results. You know, certain improvements here, improvements there. Whereas we're actually getting people better. You know, we're getting people recovering. And that's the exciting part of this type of, uh, this type of theory and this type of response. Absolutely. So I want to dive in now to some of those other conditions outside of fatigue or other comorbidities that uh, include fatigue, like, as you mentioned, the, the mold sensitivities, the um, electrohypersensitivity, sensitivity, um, chemical sensitivity. So you've got some amazing um, anecdotes and, and case studies on your um, website, which is really good to, to watch and, and read. What are some of the yeah, conditions that you are seeing outside of just your fibromyalgia and fatigue that you're getting benefits for? Uh, so predominantly uh, patients with um, multiple chemical sensitivities and MCAS, so the mast cell activation, we're getting a lot of patients who are healing and recovering from those. And um, I, I guess, and, and POTS as well. So a lot of people with POTS are also showing improvements because there tends to be a lot of crossover. So I wouldn't even say there is mm. one condition. There tends to be someone may have fibro with POTS. Now, is it that they've got POTS with fibro or fibro with POTS? Have they got chemical sensitivities and electrical sensitivities with MECFS or, or the other way around? These are all downstream symptoms unique to each patient, but for a core reason. And with chemical sensitivities, we find that eventually patients are able to, um, first of all, retrain at home then gradually increase their exposure by perhaps visiting a supermarket or going outside. And then eventually over time, um, they can expose themselves more and more and more till eventually they have no response. Now, what's interesting is when they go through then a very specific, uh, you know, a very, let's say they let go of the Gupta program tools and um, perhaps they become a bit more complacent with the retraining. Um, then what we find is that if they go through a severe period of stress, there can be symptoms that come back. Which and we're honest about that, which indicates that the underlying core uh, conditioning in the brain, it's not that it's disappeared, but it's being controlled. Mm. But if somebody has severe stress and they mimic exactly the same circumstances that they had at the beginning of the condition, then that can mean that um, that can re-trigger old conditioning. Therefore, for us, it's about long term shifts and changes. So what's different about us compared to other retraining programs out there? is that we take a far more holistic long-term view and help patients recognize any patterns which may have kept them under stress in the first place. So we noticed that as a result of adverse childhood experiences, people with these conditions are probably more likely to be, to be conscientious beings who perhaps push beyond their limits and boundaries, perhaps work too hard or sacrifice themselves at the expense of their own health. And that's a pattern we see time and time again. Therefore, the long-term ability to recognize one's patterns, recognize one's adverse childhood experiences, and not allow yourself to put your body in danger again is an important part of uh, longevity of health. Yeah. So uh, would there be any, like, screening processes? I'm just thinking, say, a, a practitioner may have a patient who has fibromyalgia. Um, are there any, like, patients who may more likely benefit or respond to the therapy like a history of like explicit trauma or is it the fact as we you know throughout life we all have stresses and some sort of traumas and things that um we're all likely to potentially benefit from a program if we've got symptoms like is 
you know, do, would it be best to screen patients for stress or past history of stress or trauma or um, it's more like a, a therapeutic trial that you've got fatigue and fibromyalgia and um, it's probably likely you assume that there's some sort of conditioning there that um, whether you can identify a, a certain moment in the past or not that you may benefit from this program. Yeah, so we definitely don't think there's a specific type of person who would benefit. Um, so just because somebody hasn't had a history of trauma or anxiety doesn't mean that the same neurological processes aren't occurring in the brain. Uh, the brain may, for whatever reason, in that moment, just decide to create that conditioning. And we, until now, don't know why that is. Um, mm. We just seem to see a propensity for a higher likelihood of that. So we would say that Anybody who has these, these types of neuroimmune conditions uh, can benefit from our program as long as all the other things have been excluded. So sure. we always emphasize to our patients that they must see their doctors, have all the blood work done, make sure that everything's ruled out before they come to our program, because generally these conditions are uh, based on exclusion criteria uh, rather than something definitive to say this is the reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, definitely any type of patient who's experiencing this could benefit. And it's not just, I mean, we, we certainly treat those types of conditions, but we also find people use it even for chronic anxiety as well. So if someone has chronic anxiety, uh, similar brain retraining process can support and heal them as well. Brilliant. Yeah, and just as opposed to um, remind practitioners, I think we covered it in one of the, the earlier uh, podcasts with Ari Witten that, the majority of patients who suffer from fatigue, only maybe 5% will find any sort of abnormalities in a blood test. Um, and also I think the other thing is that it could be a genetic, it could even be like epigenetic, it could be trauma from a you know, the pregnancy or, or, or prior to that. So um, it'd be very difficult to identify a specific stressor that in a patient who's a candidate for this therapy. So, yeah, I sort of sense almost um, that everybody could benefit from this program. Uh, yes, uh, and, and, and I, know, I know Ari Witten, I was interviewed by him a while back, and, um, you know, I, I definitely agree with a lot of his ways of seeing fatigue. Um, at the same time, I think for us, the priority, uh, certainly for the more severe patients, is that the fatigue is being caused by, um, and, it was, and it's not really even fair to call it fatigue, it's really exhaustion. That deep mm. exhaustion is being caused by even a mild overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and the immune system can cause fatigue. So the example of having flu, like how exhausted do we all feel when we have flu? We feel exhausted because the immune system uses up resources and triggers a whole set of cytokines in the body, which all drain energy. They all kind of compromise our ability because the body doesn't want us to be active and go out and do things. So we, there's both a physiological effect and a, a mental and emotional effect as well to enforce us to rest. So fatigue and exhaustion are very, are very subjective experiences. And therefore, uh, when we have overstimulation of these systems, they will use up energy very quickly. Take the example of a panic attack. You know, somebody can be perfectly healthy and full of energy. They have a panic attack for two minutes, two, three minutes. And, and those of you who've had panic attacks, you'll know. And you can feel extremely exhausted for the rest of the day. Mm. Now, isn't that interesting? You've not done anything physical. You've not run a marathon. Yeah. But yeah, you can yeah. feel slammed. You can feel like exhausted just from a two or three minute overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. So that should give us the evidence that actually um, a lot of causes of ex uh, fatigue, exhaustion uh, can come from mild to mo moderate worrying 
right through to uh, anxiety, right through to full-blown panic. And in, at a physiological level, if we have mild to moderate over-inflammation in the body from a bad diet and lack of exercise, that can cause fatigue, ongoing fatigue, through, right through to if we actually have a neuroimmune condition where we've got chronic overstimulation of the immune system and nervous system, that can, will cause chronic exhaustion. And so we approach it from retraining the brain and the supporting holistic practices that bring this, the system back to balance. Um, just as a, a personal question, you've recovered now, but um, do you sort of do a, a maintenance type of the program? Are you aware of what might sort of worsen you or trigger you? Um, do you, know, you wouldn't have to do the whole you know, extensive program continuously. Have you got sort of to a maintenance period for yourself? Um, I would say that um, uh, when I first got better and I was doing it very ad hoc in my own brain, uh, you know, experimenting with different processes, um, at that time, yes, I was probably more prone to the effects of stress afterwards. But obviously, it's been many years since I've retrained my brain. And so now I can have, you know, I have a very busy clinic. Um, I can have a very long, busy day. And I know there's no danger of me re-triggering it. At the right. same time, I do know that regular meditation, morning and evening, uh, is very good for me because it keeps my nervous system settled and balanced. Know how, you know, no matter how busy the clinic may get during the day. So from a maintenance perspective, yes, regular meditation is a great way and the quickest and easiest way of actually kind of calming our nervous systems. Excellent. All right, so... How does one access the program? I believe you can do it online and um, or virtually now. We um, connect with you and, and your team and, and follow the program remotely, particularly if we're over here in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, yes. So we have now made our program fully online since last year. And so what happens is patients, first of all, can come to the site. They can sign up for a free trial to kind of get a feel for it. Um, and then they can purchase the online program. So it's, you have access to all the videos and the audios, the meditations, uh, fully online across all your devices. You can access on your phone and, and your tablet, your laptop. And um, there are 15 interactive video sessions, which were shot in the Swiss Alps. So a beautiful kind of healing back, backdrop to it. Um, and patients can also join a support group. So within our system, they can actually connect and communicate with like-minded patients support each other. We've got thousands of patients helping each other as well, which is brilliant. We know that um, programs like this always work better when there are mutual support groups um, as well. And then we've got trained therapists and practitioners around the world. We have practitioners in America, in Australia, UK, who can then support patients one-on-one -on -one as well. And um, our program, until we get a large independent randomized controlled trial with hundreds of patients, until then, our program comes with a one-year money-back guarantee as well. So patients can try the program. If they have no benefit, they can get their money back, you know, no questions asked. So from that perspective, it means that it's low risk for a patient mm -hmm. uh, to try it um, and to see whether it would work for them. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, we're very proud of the program. It, we, you know, it's really getting great feedback. And now we just really want to prove this to the medical profession by having this large-scale trial. Beautiful. Um, any final closing remarks? Uh, um, I really appreciate your time and you've been so articulate and the, the program you've described is so comprehensive and impressive. Um, any sort of final closing remarks you want to stress? Uh, yes, to, to everybody listening, 
I think we're at the, the juncture of a new type of medicine. Before, medicine was based on hardware problems, not software problems. So I describe uh, many things that are treated in a hospital or by a GP as hardware problems, where there's physical things that go wrong and we fix those issues. The new dawn of medicine is software problems, neuroplastic problems, where the nervous system and the, uh, the brain are creating uh, responses which cause ongoing illness. And the ability to retrain those responses to bring the body and the brain back to homeostasis is the new frontier of medicine. And a lot of conditions, I would say 70 to 80% of the conditions that may present in a doctor's surgery may come under this banner. And so I'm including things like pain issues, fatigue issues, anxiety, depression, um, all of these types of conditions which are quite difficult to treat. Underlying it, the reason they're difficult to treat is because they won't be treated with drugs, because drugs are a blunt instrument for these type of software issues. Instead, um, actually embracing more what traditionally were called complementary techniques, but actually they're not complementary. They are core, they're core techniques to rebalance uh, people's nervous systems and immune systems. That will be the future of medicine. And, um, you know, we're already seeing that and it will only become, uh, you know, more and more into the mainstream consciousness. So I'd love for people to, to kind of come to the website, guptaprogram.com. You can have a surf around, look at all the, the resources that we have there, all the free videos, and really get a sense of it, whether it makes sense for you or your um, patients. And finally, with COVID-19, um, uh, we know that now uh, around 5 to 10% of patients are experiencing long-term effects. And we now believe this comes under the same banner, that as long as the doctors checked out people's uh, blood work, etc., this may also be a neuroimmune condition syndrome where because of the traumatic experience and the survival aspects of having COVID-19, it becomes so traumatic for the amygdala and insula that even once they've recovered, for months afterwards, they continue to get ME-CFS type symptoms. And therefore, I unfortunately believe we're on the, the verge of another pandemic, mm. a kind of hidden pandemic of many, many people having these post-viral effects for months, if not years. And we're really trying hard to get the resources and the information to people so that they can, um, you know, catch it while it while it's early, as it were. Yeah, yeah, that's something I didn't, never considered. Ashok, it's been a, a pleasure to meet you. I'm so impressed with your knowledge and passion, and also just that zeal to to really drive this further. Um, I think you are sort of preaching to the converted here, but um, yeah, I really wish you well in your endeavours and um, yeah, I'd love to catch up in the future and discuss more of your data and, and case studies in the future. Yes, thank you, Nathan. It's been, it's been wonderful and uh, it, you know, great work that you guys are doing in putting these podcasts together and really kind of looking at some of the more, you know, the le less mainstream aspects of medicine. I think it's great. Thank you. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.